The sea does not belong to despots. Upon its surface, men can still exercise unjust laws, fight, tear one another to pieces, and be carried away with the terrestrial horrors. But at 30 feet below its level, their reign ceases, their influence is quenched, and their power disappears. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Yacht of the Golden Silence podcast. Your tickets have been taken, and life vests and floaties are being distributed for your safety, and we will soon be enjoying this flick deep in international waters. But before we roll on with the Life Aquatic with Captain Nemo, I just want to remind you to follow Golden Silence cast on Instagram for the most up-to-date information on this little podcast. And for all of you tweeters on the Twitter... The Golden Silence Podcast exists there as well. You can just search for Golden Silence Cast or tweet us at Golden Silence One. It is in these online locales that we let you know what movies are in the pipeline and how best to watch them. You'll also find historical pictures and other show notes and odds and ends. Then we reconvene here for a bit of infotainment amongst friends. Now, the title on the marquee for today's smooth episode is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This is Universal's extraordinary 1916 production of Jules Verne's legendary science fiction novel. This movie is also a technological wonder for its underwater scenes and island action. But before our cinematic boat leaves port, let's see what was going on in the nautical world of 1916. Between April 24th and May 10th, an open boat journey from Elephant Island in the South Shetland Islands to South Georgia in the Southern Atlantic Ocean is undertaken by Sir Ernest Shackleton and five companions to rescue the main body of the Imperial Transatlantic Expedition following the loss of its ship, Endurance. Between May 31st and June 1st, the World War I Battle of Jutland between the British Royal Navy's Grand Fleet and the Imperial German Navy's high seas fleet in the North Sea, the war's only large-scale battle of battleships. The result is tactically inconclusive, but British dominance of the North Sea is maintained. July 1st to the 12th, on the Jersey Shore, there were the Jersey Shore shark attacks of 1916 spread terror on the Atlantic coast. At least one shark attacks five swimmers along 80 miles of New Jersey coastline, resulting in four deaths and the survival of one youth who required limb amputation. This event is the inspiration for author Peter Benchley to write Jaws over 50 years later. On August 30th, the crew of the Imperial Transatlantic Expedition's Endurance is rescued from Elephant Island. While Captain Nemo zips around the seven seas seeking a dish of cold-served revenge, there is only one thing I would rock on my yacht, cocktail in hand, casually seeking out. The movie description. Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, directed by Stuart Patton, produced by Carl Lemley, screenplay by Stuart Patton, based on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, by Jules Verne, starring Alan Holliber as Captain Nemo, Jane Gale as Child of Nature, 
Matt Moore as Lieutenant Bond, William Welsh as Charles Denver, and Curtis Benton as Ned Land, Dan Hanlon as Professor Aranax, and Edna Pendleton as Aranax's daughter. Cinematography by Eugene Gaudio, distributed by Universal, and was released on December 24, 1916. With those maritime movie viewing legalities taken care of, let's talk about how to watch this movie. Nobody has time to read a novel, so let's do the time-efficient thing and skip the literature and watch this instead. And this film is even more efficient since it takes two of Verne's books and smushes them together. Obviously, we get 20,000 leagues, but this film also incorporates parts of his another novel, The Mysterious Island. We watch one movie and skip two books. Perfect setup, right? Nah, just kidding. Watch this movie and read his books. All of his books, actually. Those were all jokes. Please, read these books. There's a sci-fi fan and adventure fan. I can vouch for how amazing his works really were. How scientifically in-depth they were, and as fun as they could be. In prep for this episode, I even reread 20,000 Leagues, and it was still, still a great read. As for the version of the film we're watching for this review, it is from the good folks at Kino Lorber. If you can watch an old movie, or in this case, a silent, Kino Lorber puts so much attention and TLC into each release. They do amazing work, and this release is no exception. The first thing to notice about this version is the picture. Don't forget, this film was released in 1916, and for the most part, you would never know. The picture is so clear and crisp. Kino Lorber also gives the TLC and the extras, too. This release has a fantastic and super informative audio commentary with film historian Anthony Slide and an amazing, amazing new score by Orlando Perez Rosso. I'll talk about those a little bit later, but just needless to say, one of the best film scores I've ever heard. Now, before we begin our deep dive about a deep dive, let's zip back a bit. We're going to start here in 1916, but let's go back first to February 8th, 1828. That would be the birth date of Jules Gabriel Verne, the French novelist, poet, and playwright. He's the reason we're here today talking about Captain Nemo and company aboard the Nautilus. In an article entitled 15 Things You, May not, you Might Not Know About Jules Verne on mentalfloss.com, author Suzanne Raga tells us a bit about the early, formative years of Verne. On February 8th, 1828, Pierre and Sophie Verne welcomed their first child, Jules Gabriel, at Sophie's mother's home in Nantes, a city in western France. Verne's birthplace had a profound impact on his writing. In the 19th century, Nantes was a busy port city that served as a major hub for French shipbuilders and traders, and Verne's family lived on Isle Fédou, a small man-made island in a tributary of the Loire River. Verne spent his childhood watching ships sail down the Loire, and imagining what it would be like to climb aboard them. He would later work these memories of maritime life into his writing. Now, in fact, later in life, Verne would write, The sea is everything. It covers seven-tenths of the terrestrial globe. Its breath is pure and healthy. It is an immense desert where man is never lonely, for he feels life stirring on all sides. As Verne grew, he would turn to writing. As his love of literature grew, he took his talents to the theater, where he would write several plays. He would also publish short stories and scientific essays in various periodicals. In 1857, Verne would marry and take a job as a broker in the Paris stock market. 
Turning to Britannica.com, Arthur B. Evans tells us how Verne started down the path to being the first sci-fi superstar. During this period, he continued to write, to do research at the National Library, and to dream of a new kind of novel, one that would combine scientific fact with adventure fiction. In September 1862, Verne met Pierre Jules Hetzel, who agreed to publish the first of Verne's Extraordinary Journeys series. Initially serialized, the novel became an international bestseller, and Hetzel offered Verne a long-term contract to produce many more works of science fiction. Verne subsequently quit his job at the stock market to become a full-time writer and began what would prove to be a highly successful author-publisher collaboration that lasted more than 40 years. Now, to say he was successful in literary pursuits is a crazy, crazy understatement. Verne wrote in French, but his works have always had an international appeal. Since the 1850s, his writing has been translated into approximately 150 languages, making him the second most translated author ever. He has appeared in translation even more often than William Shakespeare. He is second only to Agatha Christie, who holds the world record, Suzanne Raga tells us. On March 24, 1905, Verne would pass away from diabetes at his home in Amiens, France. Now, turning our attention to the motion picture itself, let's talk about the Williamson brothers a bit. I'm talking, of course, about John Ernest and George Williamson. While these names may not be superstar Hollywood names today, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea could not have existed without them. Or, if it did, it would have been an incredibly different film. John Ernest Williamson was born on December 8, 1881, in Liverpool, England. Brian Taves of the Library of Congress gives us a glimpse at why J.E.'s upbringing would set the stage for cinematic history. John Ernest Williamson was active in motion pictures for nearly 50 years. His father was a sea captain who invented a deep-sea tube made of a series of concentric interlocking rings that stretched like an accordion. Suspended from a specially outfitted ship, this shaft into the sea allowed easy communication and a plentiful supply of air down to depths of up to 250 feet. When attached to a diving apparatus, the tube could assist in underwater repair and salvage work. In 1912, young Williamson, then a journalist, realized that his father's mechanism could also be used to obtain undersea photographs. With the light hung from the mothership to illuminate the sea in front of the tube, still photographs of the depths off Hampton Roads, Virginia, proved so successful that Williamson was urged to try motion pictures. After a time of test pictures and footage, J.E. Williamson started to get traction. J.E. and George got interest from film companies. An investor would provide a camera, a cinematographer, and the ability to market the film. In an article entitled A Portable Hole in the Sea for the Mariner's Museum and Park, Gene Willows Egnor describes a contraption that would make underwater filming possible. John Ernest and George devised a new observation chamber, which they called a photosphere. It was a 6 by 10 foot steel globe with a large funnel-shaped window on one side. The window, made in France, was an inch and a half thick and 5 feet in diameter. They also had optical experts at the Rochester Institute of Technology develop new camera lenses and film for the expedition and acquired nine 
2400 candle power Cooper Hewitt lamps. The brothers used this incredible piece of aquatic tech to go to Nassau in the Bahamas to test it out. They named the photosphere the Jules Verne, and the ship that towed it was called the Nautilus. The footage captured by cinematographer Carl Lewis Gregory for Thanhauser Film Corporation was turned into two films for Williamson and his submarine film company. These films would lay the groundwork for the underwater filming yet to come. Over the course of the next 40 years, Willow Zegner tells us, John Ernest filmed underwater scenes for about 11 movies, and while his work didn't advance the technology of underwater cameras or diving equipment, or offer new scientific insights, it did provide the impetus for the expanded use of undersea photography and filmmaking. With our captain's hat on and a pina colada in hand, it is time to sit back, relax on the deck, shove off to live our smoothest yacht rock dreams and learn about Captain Nemo. The Universal Film Manufacturing Company presents the first submarine photo play ever filmed based on Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, copyrighted 1916 by Universal Film Manufacturing Company, Carl Lemley, President, All Rights Reserved. Directed by Stuart Patton, photographed by Eugene Gaudio. Now, Stuart Patton, aside from having a great first name, was born July 23, 1883 in Glasgow, Scotland. He directed 67 films between 1915 and 1938. He also wrote another 24 films. Patton passed away at the age of 61 on December 16, 1944. And we're going to turn back to Brian Taves again to give us some insights into this production before we get started with the movie proper. Production began, Brian Taves says this, Production began in the Bahamas in the spring of 1916, facing many perils. A heavy sea would rock the bars from which the tube was suspended, or the waters might become cloudy with sediment, making photography from inside the photosphere impossible. As men in diving suits, portraying Captain Nemo's crew, enacted the undersea funeral or a fight with the denizens of the deep, they were actually menaced by nearby barracudas. But let's take a look at the film proper now. Before the movie begins, we are told a little bit about the footage, about the underwater footage that will come into play later in the film. The screen tells us, The submarine scenes in this production were made possible by the use of the Williamson inventions and were directed under the personal supervision of the Williamson brothers, who alone have solved the secret of under-the-ocean photography. These two brothers are Ernest and George Williamson. Now, I should note that there is a different style of film opening than I have ever seen. So in these opening bits of the film, the movie is really pushing the technology of this feature. It started with telling us that this is the first submarine photo play ever filmed. Then we learn about the tech of the film. Now we see footage, actual footage of the Williamson brothers. Fact. When Jules Verne wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the startling inventions in this masterpiece impressed the world as being the limit of imagination and impossibility. Jules Verne died a disappointed man because the world did not take him seriously. But after all, he was merely 50 years ahead of his time. Before the action kicks up, we also get a picture of Monsieur Verne. Fiction. Over 50 years ago, the civilized world was seized in a grip of terror on account of repeated reports of a gigantic sea monster which attacked and destroyed ships, sending their crews to a watery grave. Terror prevailed on the high seas. 
Such was the situation when the United States government decided to send an expedition to raid the ocean of this demon of the deep. With the movie tech and movie setup out of the way, we can dive into some high seas adventure. But lest you think this is just an American adventure, we are introduced to a distinguished French scientist, Professor Aranax. He was staying, he was stopping at the old Fifth Avenue Hotel in New York. Dan Hanlon is playing the part of Professor Aranax here. We also learn that his daughter was his constant companion. His daughter is played by Edna Pendleton. So they're hanging out in their hotel room. Now, I believe Aranax's daughter is a creation from this film. She wasn't in the book. He had another uh, companion, a male, uh, not servant, but he had a secretary or some, a comp- I can't remember what, they, what the word is, but he was a companion of some sort. And so the daughter basically takes that character's place. So she's checking herself and her dress out in the mirror as Aranax reads a letter. This letter is from J.R. Hobson of the U.S. government requesting his presence aboard the Abraham Lincoln as the representative of France on the mission to seek and destroy this monster. His daughter is excited for this adventure and eventually convinces her pop to join because sailing takes them away to where they've always heard it could be, just a dream and the wind to carry them. And this wind that carries them out to this Abraham Lincoln where they meet Ned Land, Canadian harpooner extraordinaire. And Ned wastes no time getting all flirty with, with, his, with Aranax's daughter. As they all get a tour of the Abraham Lincoln, our attention turns to the Wizard of the Deep. At this time, unknown to the world, there lived a man of mystery who called himself Captain Nemo. He nursed a secret desire for revenge. He invented a strange craft in which he could navigate under the ocean. With a loyal crew, he traversed every sea, but never landed at any port, resolved to accomplish, accomplish his vengeful purpose or die without disclosing his secret to mankind. The intertitles on this movie are super rad. While seemingly long-winded, I think they are great and do an amazing job of setting the scene. It really gives the movie a literary feel, which is appropriate considering all the love the filmmakers gave to Jules Verne earlier. We go into the Nautilus to be introduced to Captain Nemo, who sits in his cabin smoking his pipe. Again, this is Alan Hulabar playing Nemo. He is in dark skin paint, basically blackface, playing the East Indian Captain Nemo. After this quick moment with Nemo, we are taken out into the sea to see the Nautilus in action. This is our first underwater shot. We also get a cool special effect shot of the sub coming to the surface. It slowly fades into existence. Nothing crazy for today's film, but it's a pretty amazing trick for back in the day. Now, Hullabar was born on August 3rd, 1890, in San Francisco, California. He appeared in 38 films between 1913 and 1917 before switching to directing until his death in 1923. He died on November 23rd, 1923, in Los Angeles, California. Captain Nemo, having built and launched the monster, followed the path of vessels for 20,000 leagues in search of vengeance, failing to locate his enemy. He now heads his craft toward a point in the tropic seas. With a sub topside, Nemo goes out on it. He is saluted by his crew as he looks out onto the vast ocean. He looks through a device, plotting his next adventure. In secret, he aggrieves over his unavenged wrongs, we're told. Now, the Abraham Lincoln starts to get near the area of the last sighting. 
and a Kirk Kahn game of cat and mouse begins. Both ships maneuver, looking out for the other. So this is it. Make no mistake where you are. Your back's to the corner. This is it. You're going no further, the Nautilus and Captain Nemo says, because Ned Land is the first to catch a glimpse of the monster. The Nautilus pulls up right beside Lincoln. Ned Land chucks a harpoon, but it just bounces off. Its height is too tough for harpoons. Nemo watches from, watches this from down periscope. Abraham Lincoln, the Abraham Lincoln folks try to sh try the ship's cannons, but even that does nothing. It keeps moving right down the line. Fearing that the secret of his submarine would be made known to the world, Captain Nemo rams the Abraham Lincoln, pitching the professor and his party overboard. This boat versus submarine battle scene is great. You really get a sense of fast motion and actual boat battle. Now the Abraham Lincoln is now rudderless and floats away, all broke down. The professor and his gang float, watching the ship go away. Now it's time for the strangest of rescues. Despite his resolve never to allow anyone on his but his crew aboard the submarine, Captain Nemo, in compassion, saves the victims. Now this is a cool bit where the sub rises out of the water with the folks on it, lifting them to safety. The crew makes their way up, bringing each survivor back down. You can see the emotions in Nemo's face and body. He hated the idea of bringing these interlopers into his sanctum, but he couldn't let them die. Alan Hullabar killed it here as Nemo. Such good stuff. This is the perfect example of being able to convey so much without saying a word. Once the professor and his gang realize their situation, they decide a breakout is their best course of action. They awake to find themselves in a cell. The old prisoner's ship is not their bag. They attempt an escape, but it is quickly foiled and they meet their captor for the first time. I am Captain Nemo, he says, and this is my submarine, Nautilus. It has pleased me to save your lives. You are my prisoners. That is the ultimate good news, bad news situation, I'd say. They try to talk their way out of the cell, but Nemo coolly, calmly listens. As they continue to plead and bargain, he erupts. You shall never leave this ship as long as I live. Nemo collects himself, calms a bit before bidding them farewell, and returns to his quarters. The survivors locked back up. Nemo concedes to his lieutenant's call for leniency. The group is given fresh submarine crew clothes to wear. At this point, we leave the shenanigans of the Nautilus and jump over to the mysterious island, where we learn a child of nature lives. This child of nature is a lady in the womanly version of Tarzan gear, Asleep in a Tree, played by Jane Gale. And also, as the story will point out later, she is also uh, in blackface, uh, playing another nationality. But I don't want any spoilers yet, but that's uh, the look. And uh, as it turns out, she is in a tree sleeping. And... The tree's not very high. When you watch the scene, you're like, oh, that's uh, cool. But then when she jumps out, it's only like a foot off the ground. So not that impressive. But no one's going to break her stride as she dances to the beach only to see a balloon full of dudes that has somehow gotten from the U.S., presumably the South, to way out into an ocean. Seems scientifically suspect to me. 
Because these men are Union soldiers. They're Union scouts that stole a balloon and somehow ended up on a tropic island. Like I talked about earlier, this is the entry point of Verne's 1875 novel, The Mysterious Island. What was two separate but connected books are sort of mashed up here to form one movie. The shared literary universe becomes one movie here, and at least for me, it was a bit jarring. Eventually, it all comes together, but the Mysterious Island segue was, was a bit off for me, personally. We learn, about this time, Lieutenant Bond and four Union Army scouts frustrate an attempt to destroy their balloon and are carried out to sea. Those are the guys we, I was talking about a little bit ago. There was, at this point, little action showing the Union men fending off enemies but accidentally lost their balloon, a la the Wizard of Oz. For days they sail towards the tropics, until at last they sight Mysterious Island. So, I think I screwed up. Switched these two sections around, but needless to say, uh, a boat from the Civil War should not be in a tropic place, but the child of nature sees them drop into the water, and we that's how they find themselves on the Mysterious Island. Um... As the dudes hover over Mysterious Island, also hanging out nearby is Nemo and the Nautilus. Our wild child also sees the balloonist. Everyone is converging on the Mysterious Island. What could possibly go wrong? Well, for starters, the basket of the balloon detaches and falls into the ocean, and one poor fellow is stuck clinging to the runaway hot air balloon. So, technically, actually quite a bit could go wrong. The soldiers swim to shore as the child of nature dances and moves about the jungle tree line, watching these guys come ashore. And also, the poor guy is still tangled in the balloon, floating away. This is a pretty cool effect. Uh, it looked like there was a real person still up there on the balloon. Not sure how they did it, but it looked real as heck and pretty darn terrifying. Luckily or unluckily, the balloonist eventually falls from the balloon. But he falls smack dab in the middle of Captain Nemo periscope viewing range. Well, technically, not the periscope. Nemo sees the unconscious lunar from his observation window. Him and his crewmen go topside of the sub. He orders two of his men to help the half-drowned man ashore. I'll tell you right now, these guys were all jumping in and swimming some choppy-ass waters. While everything looks cool as hell on screen, this seemed like a terrifying movie to be in. From boat battles and maybe real people hanging from balloons and oceans of death, I'm glad everyone survived this stuff. And we're not even at the underwater stuff yet. And a lot of the people that played the crew were all professional swimmers. So they knew what they were doing, but still, like the, the stuff they were swimming in was terrifying. And, and I'm not biased because of childhood sea traumas and summer camp tears. Nope, not one bit. Not me. Anyway, having saved the balloonist, the two men return to the sub. Nemo watches intently as the man regains consciousness. It's dawn. It's the morning, and we are treated to the child of nature waking up on a, jung on a jungle hill with a crap ton of birds. Seriously, a crap ton flying everywhere. So while she's getting all birded up, our Union soldiers, and I guess their black companion, servant, are being washed ashore. The leader is asking where Harding is. He is the balloon guy from a little bit from the earlier cave rescue. This is, unfortunately, another example of, of black of a black guy getting pretty crappy parts. I mean, either subservient roles or, or as buffoons. It's especially odd for all the intents and purposes that these Union soldiers basically have a slave 
but he's not a slave. Uh, it's it's just a weird thing, and he'll he'll eventually mysteriously disappear uh, by the end of the movie. So we don't even know what happened to him, but it is what it is. Now we get a quick montage of the soldiers looking up and down the coastal caverns for their comrade. Harding is found, and the castaways are reunited. Back on the Nautilus, Nemo takes pity on the ill-fated castaways and has a crate of food and supplies pushed out into the water to eventually wash up on the shore. The castaways bring the crate ashore as the nature child watches from the jungle. I've never been too good at seeing deep meanings in movies, but as the soldiers pull the crate out, all but one is wearing white shirts. The other has an all-black outfit on. Uh, does anyone out there want to take a guess which guy's going to end up being a jerk later in the movie? Uh, hold on to your answers. I'll answer those later on. They think it's the remains of a shipwreck. While they dig in, they fail to notice the Nautilus sneaking around the sea. At this point, the white contingent is pulling out all the cool stuff. Guns, clothes, more guns and ammo. While the black guy, the black servant companion guy, is impressed by the cooking pots. It kind of looks ridiculous in and out of context. It's a shame and and a blemish on on this on the on an otherwise fantastic film. Uh, like I said, he he's gonna end up disappearing, so we never even find out what happened to the poor guy. Lieutenant Bond hears something in the jungle while they're all looking. He runs out. He runs off, gun in hand. He doesn't know it, but he's on the trail of the nature girl. Meanwhile, in the submarine, Professor Aranax and his party are summoned to Captain Nemo's cabin. Nemo uses his time to make a deal. I wish to make you my guests, not my prisoners, he tells them. Give me your promise never to attempt to escape, and you shall have the freedom of the ship, he adds. They shake hands and promise. Back on the island, the men build themselves a camp in the seaside caverns and a hole for catching beasts. And catching beasts is just what it does, except instead of beasts, Lieutenant Bond nabs a real-life jungle girl. The men are eating in their caverns, served by their servant. They are Union soldiers, so serving food is definitely a servant and not a slave. So Bond now is bringing Nature Girl back to the camp. He gets some clothes from his camp for her to wear. We get some fun comedic moments as he teaches the jungle girl how to wear pants and tuck in a button shirt. This is one of the highlights of the whole island sequence which uh, the highland half of the movie i was not a big fan of it but this is one of the high points this uh not slapstick but just some fun little comedic character bits with uh getting her dressed he introduces her to his comrades look what i found in the pit he says she gives them all quite a scare they both sit down the next scene is back on nemo's sub and this is where things start to get cool he wants to introduce them to the wonders of the deep. Nemo sits them down and introduces his magic window. He tells them they are on the sea's floor. They can't believe what they're seeing. This scene is just amazing. 1916 underwater film porn, if you will. A lot of time is spent looking into the ocean, and rightfully so. This footage is killer. I can only imagine what it was like to be in a theater in 1916 seeing this stuff. This is a world with pre-National Geographic, television. Like there, 
no one was seeing a lot of this stuff. And this must have blown people's minds that went to the theater to see this. And it's very rare that something that technologically advanced happens. So it must have been wild seeing this stuff for the first time when it's all regular to us these days. Nemo explains, through these crystal plates constructed to withstand the pressure of the water at this great depth, we gaze on scenes which you might think God never intended us to see. Nemo's guests are in awe of what they're seeing. There are beautiful marine gardens and sponges and coral reefs. Notice how brilliant is the reflection of the sun's rays on these coral beds, fathoms below the surface, below the surface Nemo notes. After more amazing footage, Nemo tells us, at the base is dead coral formed by skeletons of the little coral polyp, a marine animal. Next in our tour of the seabed is the wreckage of an old blockade runner. Everyone wonders, everyone wonders at the thought of the crystal plates being the only thing protecting them from sure death. Nemo loves every second of this. Their wonder and amazement feeds directly into Nemo's vanity. In fact, for Nemo watching stuff through a window ain't nearly the coolest thing he is going to show off to his guests. Next in our tour of the seabed... Oh, sorry. Uh, this is... For Nemo, watching stuff through a window ain't nearly the coolest thing he is going to show off to his guests. Tomorrow, I shall show you some scenes even more wonderful. I shall take you for a hunting trip on the very floor of the ocean. Sounds pretty rad to me, but terrifying. But we'll get into my aquatic hang-ups later. Uh, but back on the island, Bond and Nature Girl are having a fun, jaunty walk through the jungle. It is cute, it is flirty, but what is not cute and flirty is the creeper watching. He's the guy in all the black clothes from earlier. Having eyed and spied all this, the creeper now knows where Nature Girl lives. That can't be good. Now, an interesting point was brought up here by Anthony Slide, who did the commentary track. Um, Bond and Jane Gale, who was wearing blackface, is a rare relationship. Because especially in 1916, a relationship between a white guy and in this case an Indian woman or ethnic woman of some sort uh, wasn't something you saw very often. So, so that's a pretty cool little little fact there. But after they're spent some time together, we move back aboard the Nautilus for our promised ocean seafloor hunt. Nemo tells Land and Aranax how things are going to work. From this cabin, we shall descend into the water chamber, from which we will pass through a trap door into the ocean. Nemo continues, these suits are my own invention. Instead of receiving air from above, we breathe through tubes connected with oxygen tanks. So they're all getting geared up when Nemo adds, although we have neither lifelines nor air pipes, we need not fear. With our supply of oxygen, we can remain underwater indefinitely. Now that everyone is suited up, they begin making their way out to the ocean floor. Their first stop is to hunt in the marine gardens. They make slow headway as they push forward against the current. Two of the parties separate to hunt for pearls. Not to be outdone by the pearl hunting, the others in the underwater, the others in the underwater party go a shark hunting. 
The guns which the hunters carry are discharged by compressed air, we are told. So the people in the dive suits that are out on the, the floor were not the actors, historian, film historian Anthony Sly told us. They were a group of professional divers hired by J.E. Williamson. Captain Nemo takes Aranax on their own thrilling adventure. They arrive in the vast ocean meadows infested by tigers of the sea. Now, in addition to the sheer awesomeness of this footage, the makers go out of their way to show the science of the situation. They make a point to explain how the guns work or how the air in the sea helmets must be filtered and have the bad air expelled. They easily could have not shown these things or glossed over them, but like the book this movie is based on, they go into at least quasi-sort of scientific detail. So, the dudes at this point are shark hunting. According to Slide, Williamson used a dead mule as bait, and apparently the dead mule smelled so nasty, Eugene Gaudio, the cinematographer, was sick for a few days because of it. That's uh, pretty nasty. Um... And these underwater scenes in 20,000 Leagues might not look, they might look bleary and unimpressive to the modern viewer, but at the time, they were unprecedented, Kristen Hunt tells us. The movie was billed as the first submarine photo, photo play ever filmed and arrived with, publi- with, a plub- with a publicity blitz to match. Theater managers in Chicago created special matinee showings for children where they invited men in diving suits to explain the mechanics of breathing underwater during intermission or they simply display diving suits in the lobby. With their time on the C4 complete, our adventurers head back to the Nautilus, and they do this with a poor, poor turtle in hand. This movie has its own cannibal holocaust moment with a poor turtle. Not nearly as gruesome, but I have a sneaky suspicion that was a real turtle they collected. So, that's a bummer. With the thrilling sea walk out of the way, we are back on the mysterious island and introduced to a new antagonist. In a distant land, somewhere before the preceding events, Charles Denver, a retired ocean trader, is haunted in his dreams, the film tells us. Charles Denver is portrayed by William Welsh. A quick dip into imdb.com tells us that Welsh was born on February 9, 1870 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was an actor with an insane number of credits to his name. I found a couple different numbers as to his screen credits. He was in between 150 to over 160 films. Like I said, insanely productive. And that all came between 1912 and 1936. He died in Los Angeles on July 16, 1946 at the age of 76. The dreams that haunt Mr. Denver are made manifest in the form of a stereotypical devil and some other ghoul. What haunts him is that 12 years before this time, he had forced his attentions on the wife of Prince Dakar of India. These haunting ghouls lead Denver to a flashback. The film tells us he is terrorized in his dreams by the gruesome details of his crime against the Princess Dakar. So now we get the fun job of watching Charles Denver basically try to rape the princess as her daughter watches. If you weren't sure whether this jackass was the villain, this scene confirms it. It is sort of hard to tell what Denver's frame of mind. He's kind of axe drunk, but not super drunk. He's forceful either way. No matter what, he is a terrible human. And since this is a movie, uh, it's going to have a pretty tragic end. Since Denver has become a predator, 
The princess pulls out a knife to defend herself, but in the struggle, she is stabbed. And before the stabbing, to make things worse, not only is he attacking the princess, but he is also tossing her daughter around like a ragdoll. We return to modern times to see Denver in the throes of intense fear. One night in his bedchamber, the ghost of the princess tortures him to the point of madness. Uh, for that, I say good for her. This is shown to us in the form of the tried and true ghostly double exposure. To escape this fear, Denver hops on his yacht in an effort out to outrun the ghosts of his past. According to Slide, Gaudio was well known for his double exposure techniques. Eugene Gaudio, the cinematographer, was born on December 31, 1886 in Cosenza, Italy. He learned photography in his father's portrait studio and developed an interest in film in 1905. 20,000 Leagues was his first big-time effort. Gaudio suffered an acute attack of appendicitis and died at only 33 years of age. He died on August 1, 1920, and is buried at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. Now it's time to return to the Nautilus. The captain and his visitors are looking out the window when a pearl diver dives down on the hunt for fish and pearls and whatnot. They watch as out of nowhere he is attacked by a huge octopus. Now, as great of a movie as this is, I can't let this part slide. I'll be fair and say it's more great underwater footage, but the octopus looks way fake. It is basically a cartoony, fake-looking octopus. Mostly, the eyes are just super cartoony. And for being such a famous part of the book, this is a bit silly. Even by 1916 standards, this is a bit much, especially when the movie leans so heavily into the science of the real and film world. This part was a bit of a miss for me. But, while we're here... Let's go a little bit deeper into the creation of this uh, octopus that's uh, controversial and scandalous. As goofy as it looks today, the octopus was a technological marvel. I'll give it that. Much like most of this film. I know I gave it grief, but Johanna Mayer gives us some insight into John Ernest Williamson's creation. Her article is entitled The Making of the Octopus in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And she says this. The filmmaker was initially determined to hunt down a live, giant cephalopod, but he was also dead set that the octopus in the film would stretch to an unparalleled 30 feet. He'd heard of octopuses of roughly 20 feet, but a real cephalopod of that scale remained elusive and production time was closing in. Williamson would say the octopus was my brainchild. It was not spawned in the open sea, but in a tumultuous sea of production details. Mayer continues, Williamson began with the octopus's arm. He knew it must writhe and squirm and reach out and take hold of objects, draw them in, coil round them like a python, to resemble every detail the deadly arm of an octopus. To recreate the writhing movements, he produced tapered springs that extended and recoiled and covered them with a rubber tube. When the operator, who crouched inside the creature's head and operated the device via levers and controls, shot a burst of compressed air through the arm, it would straighten and then pull back, mimicking the movement of a real octopus, using halved rubber balls as suckers would complete the illusion. So, while looking as goofy as can be, it was a rather ingenious contraption. So, I guess I'll let it slide. 
But now that this little detour is done, we can get back to the movie proper. As the man fights to live, Nemo suits up and exits the Nautilus. He heads to the scene of the attack, axe in hand. He chops at the octopus, freeing the diver. Nemo inflates his suit, lifting himself and the diver to the surface. Sympathizing with the unfortunate diver, Nemo secures a priceless pearl for him. Speaking of battling sea creatures, J.E. Williamson, John Ernest Williamson, actually did. According to Kristen Hunt, how many men in bars have insisted they totally definitely beat up a shark one time? But Williamson knew what he was talking about. He actually fought a shark on film somewhere in Bahamian waters. Uh, under ordinary circumstances, the so-called man-eating shark has a pronounced streak of yellow in its makeup and will fly in deadly fear from man, he would later tell the New York Times. Back on the mysterious island, Bond asks Nature Girl if she remembers her mother. We flash back to see a drunk Charles Denver on his boat with the daughter of the princess. She relates how when she was a child, she was dragged from her dying mother's arms and taken to sea on a boat. Twist one, nature child is the daughter of the princess. Denver now finds himself lost on Mysterious Island. At the same time, Nemo spots a yacht off the coast of the island. Nemo commands his crew to go to the island and find out who commands the yacht. Now we get some more cool underwater shots as the crew members walk on the seafloor to the island. Charles Denver has returned to this island, wondering if the child still lives. Denver enters the jungle, gun in hand, to search for her. The next scene is a little bit of history repeating. The skeezy, villainous member of Lieutenant Bond's crew tries to push himself onto the sleeping nature child. She fights his advances off and holds him off long enough for Bond to return. Bond forces the creep out of the camp at gunpoint. He is an outcast. Banished. Members of Denver's crew find the outcast guy skulking around. They don't know he is a piece of crap, and he lies to them about his circumstances. He says he was shipwrecked and lives on the island alone. They tell him they are far from, that they are from Charles Denver's yacht. Luckily, Nemo's men are nearby to catch this conversation. After a bit of searching, the men and the outcast guy find the lost and disoriented Charles Denver. They take him back to the yacht. While this is going on, Nemo's men suit up to head out back to the Nautilus. With the outcast now on Denver's yacht, we learn the outcast plans to gain control of the yacht and abduct the island maid. He does this by getting the crew drunk. With them out of commission, he heads back to the island with two of Denver's men. The outcast and his men sneak up on a sleeping Lieutenant Bond and KO him and take the girl. Bond is alerted that she has been taken. He runs to the beach, but it's too late. They're gone. But that doesn't stop him. He swims to the yacht. What I really enjoy about this last 20-30 minutes of the movie is how the tension keeps ratcheting up and building and building and building. You start to see how all these loose ends are slowly coming together and pulling tighter and tighter. While the on-screen action builds tension, the music, which I mentioned earlier by Orlando Prez Rosso, is also doing an amazing job at building an atmosphere of, of, an atmosphere of excitement and anxiety. So Bond climbs aboard the yacht that he swam to just as Denver lays eyes on the island maiden for the first time in forever. While this drama is unfolding, we go back to the Nautilus where Nemo 
gets a report from his men. I have the honor to report that the yacht is owned by Charles Denver, the man says. It's him, him, him. What's he going to do about him? He's going to have to do without him. It's me or it's him, is basically what Nemo says here. And at last, Nemo shall have his vengeance. Back on the yacht, a mutiny is in full effect. The outcast and his dudes have taken the ship. Nemo is readying the torpedoes on the Nautilus. Back on the yacht, Bond has broken in and is fighting the outcast as Denver looks on. The torpedo is loaded, but Nemo has no clue who's on the ship. He just wants to destroy Charles Denver. Fire. It's a direct hit. Bond and the nature child jump overboard as the yacht explodes. They are rescued by the Nautilus. When he sees the... When Nemo sees the island maiden, he exclaims, Allah be praised, my daughter, or something to that effect. Lieutenant Bond's men are rescued from the island. Uh, not the... Not the companion. He somehow got lost somewhere. Now, Captain Nemo reveals the tragic secret of his life, which Jules Verne never told, we learn. Years ago, I lived in peace in an empire beyond the sea, where I was known as Prince Dakar. A beloved wife and daughter were the rarest treasures in my palace. Now, to pop in and interrupt the good prince uh, for a minute, i got to talk about the visuals during this flashback bit. This part had huge sets and tons of extras, visually stunning. With this flick, it feels like no expense was held back. They went all in, and it shows. Charles Denver, an adventurer, had gained my confidence. At this time, the mutterings of the natives portended an early uprising. The crafty Denver, who secretly coveted the princess, falsely accused me of inciting the rebellion. On the night air came the weird sounds of the tom-toms, and the frenzied shouts of the natives who had learned of my imprisonment. It was a signal for an open rebellion. Now rebellion is in full swing. The prince's people violently rise up to fight the white dudes overtaking their kingdom. They push their way to the prison. I escaped from prison and hastened to my palace. Dakar runs back into the palace only to find his love laying on the ground, bloody. With her dying breath, the princess told me how Denver had attacked her and taken our child away. When her spirit had taken flight, I bore her body from the palace. As Dakar makes his way out with the princess's lifeless body in his arms, he sees the chaos brought down upon his kingdom. My native land, he says, was made a place of death and desolation. There, beside the body of my beloved, I prayed that Allah might someday bring me face to face with mine enemy. Having reunited with his daughter, destroyed his enemy, and told his story, Nemo's body gives out on him. A life of vengeance seeking ends with the death of Nemo. His crew honors his final wishes and gives him a funeral on the sea floor. They place his wrapped corpse in a final resting place in some coral reefs. May his soul rest in peace. The great commander gone, his crew disbands, the Nautilus sinks to the silent depths, manned only by the spirit of the wizard of the sea. And that, folks, is the end of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's it. That is it. Our little yachty party is floating back into the docks of the Golden Silence podcast.
With a feature-length amount of high seas adventure behind us, it seems only right to look back at our friend Captain Nemo and haul his 20,000 leagues worth of shenanigans. This was a movie I really dug. Well, to be more specific, I really dug half of this movie. The entire part of the flick that took place on the mysterious island, I don't want to call it junk, but it was kind of clunky and junky. In an alternate reality somewhere, there's a version of this film that takes place mostly on the Nautilus. Basically, I want more of the interplay and interactions between Nemo and Aranax and Nemo and Ned Land and, and all those characters. A lot of cool story beats and character stuff is lost, and Aranax and Ned Land aren't even really fully formed characters. They deserved better. Alan Holobar as Nemo, though, put in some great work, and I thought made his screen time a real highlight. His performance really makes me want to take a deep dive into his filmography. Now, once we got outside the Nautilus, that footage is what we in the business call rad as hell. As I watched the Under the Sea stuff, it was really easy to forget that this stuff was filmed in 1916. In fact, at certain points, I felt more like I was watching a nature documentary. It lived up to the hype surrounding the ocean footage, definitely ahead of the curve, and really, really great stuff. When looking at the Blu-ray release of this film, the first thing that jumps out to you is the quality of the picture. It is crystal clear, and the majority of this film looks like it was filmed yesterday. I mean, there are some bits here and there that show their age, but really, the overall picture quality and clarity are outstanding. This is why Kino Lorber and Kino Classics are at the top of the line when you're looking for high-quality classic films. With this new 4K restoration by Universal Pictures, I guarantee you, you have never seen this movie look so good. Well, on the topic of this release, let's talk about the Blu-ray special features. First was our commentary track by film historian Anthony Slide. This was a really informative track. He was very educational. like It was like a fun lecture about the movie. The other special feature on this disc is a new musical score by Orlando Perez Rosso. The best way to describe this is thus. This is the best silent film score I have ever heard. Now, I know I'm only ankle deep into the world of silent film. But at this point, this is the best. Every emotion, every moment of action had life added to it through Perez Rosso's score. If movie scores or soundtracks are your thing, give this flick a spin. It is so worth it. Kudos and cheers to you, Orlando Perez Rosso. Before we call it a day, I had promised a little glimpse into my aquatic adventures I mean, me and Captain Nemo are pretty similar when it comes to ocean activities. We're both brave uh, adventurers willing to look death in the face. So, but I'll try and keep it short and sweet. Uh, this is around sixth grade or so. I went to summer camp on Catalina Island off the coast of California. Now, this was a camp that was based on, on all things aquatic, sea life, uh, marine biology. And for the most part, it was fun. And one time we went out to do a little snorkeling and I was uh, doing pretty good uh, up until I lost a flipper. Uh, once I lost the flipper, I, I lost all uh, courage. I lost all uh, ability to persevere and I had to call it a day. I was not swimming with one flipper. I refused. So I never snorkeled again, and spent the rest of the time at camp when other people were snorkeling, uh, hunting seashells on the seashore. 
This is also the camp, uh, the same year actually, uh, that I got locked in a uh, box. This, um, this box was to teach us how nocturnal animals are able to learn from their surroundings, they're able to move around when they're not able to see anything. How we have to feel, how we have to be aware of our surroundings. And it was a maze. You start at the one part of the box, this huge thing. And there's different steps, there's different uh, levels, changing of levels. And pitch black, nothing in there. And for some reason, uh, probably because I have terrible uh, directional sense, which even to this day, driving in cars, my directional sense is terrible. I would fall off like three foot drops in the dark, not knowing where I am. And we were in a line of, of kids. Everyone was going through it. And I just did not know what was going on. I was falling up. I was falling down. I was hitting my head off of stuff. And I don't hear any other kids in there. And I, I hear a door close. So I finally stumble, bumble, and rumble my way to the exit. But the door had been locked. It was a home alone situation. They thought they had all the kids. They thought every kid had gotten out of the out of the dark box. But I was uh, left in it. And I actually ended up having to go out the, the entrance. I guess they eventually counted the kids and realized one was missing. Came back and I never actually even made it to the end. I had to go back to the front of the door. To the front door. The entry point into the box. And uh, wait for someone to come back and open the door. So, those are my Captain Nemo-like death-defying aquatic uh, adventures. Uh, and my my friends always get a kick out of the getting locked in a box uh, story. So I figured I'd share it share it with all of you guys. But before we return to the re terrestrial life, don't forget the show is not over yet. As we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite sci-fi authors are laid to rest. This is a segment where we join our beloved literary idols on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, and celebrity spectacle of cemetery exploration converge in Where Are They Now? Your guide to paying your respects to the chapter book champs that have entertained us so much. When Chatting you up about Jules Verne earlier, I had mentioned that the author died on March 24, 1905, after battling diabetes. He died at his home in Amiens, France. He was 77 when he died. His final resting place is in La Madeleine Cemetery in the aforementioned Amiens, France. The awesome website Atlas Obscura gives us a great description of the burial spot. They say, two years after his death, a sculpture entitled Towards Immortality this is the English version. There is a French version, but I wasn't even going to try and uh, pronounce that. So I'll give you the English uh, translation. Two years after his death, a sculpture entitled Towards Immortality and Eternal Youth was erected atop his marker. Designed by sculptor Albert Rosé and using the actual death mask of the writer, the statue depicts the shrouded figure of Jules Verne breaking his own tombstone and emerging from the grave. That sounds pretty badass, and I will share some pictures of this on the Instagram and the Twitter account so you can see it for yourself. It is pretty stinking awesome. 
the effigy Atlas Obscura continues has become iconic enough that in the first issue of seminal Sci- of the seminal science fiction magazine Amazing Stories, first published in 1926, and for many years thereafter, a drawing of his tombstone appeared as part of the masthead. And with that, it is time to close up this episode of the Golden Silence Podcast. Before we go our separate ways for a bit, remember to hop on Instagram and check out Golden Silence Cast and on Twitter at Golden Silence One. Let us know what you thought about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and that beautiful underwater footage, or just what you thought about this episode in general. We here at the Podcast HQ are always looking for feedback and want to make this show as fun as possible. And knowing what you folks think helps a lot. Also, if you listen on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please rate the show and leave a review. It helps the show so, so, so very much. And I appreciate every review that you guys leave. Thanks again to all of you fine listeners for all of your fine listening. And as always, remember, the silence are golden, and the talkies are just a fad. Darling, it's better. Down where it's wetter. Take it from me. Up on the shore, they work all day. Out on the sun, they slave away. While we devoting, full time to floating. Under the sea.